Two and a Half Admins, episode 165. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. The US Copyright Office recently refused to register a copyright for an AI-generated image. It was quite a high-profile image that won an art competition. And to be fair, it won an art competition because it's a hell of a piece. It's got wonderful composition, use of light. It's it's very dramatic. The uh, The use of color is outstanding. It is a very attractive and appealing image. As Joe said, it actually is a prize-winning image. The U.S. Copyright Office's position is that it will not grant copyright to AI-generated art, period, which genuinely almost certainly is a mistake. Where they're coming from is, you know, the the usual angle of, well, this is different and it's easier and it kind of pollutes the space, but the more accurate argument would be that you can't grant copyright to an AI because an AI is not a person, it's a tool. You grant the copyright to the person who used the AI tool to generate the image. That is the creator. That's who gets the copyright. It's really not that difficult. It is no different than a little over a century ago. You look at, uh, you know, copyrights for photographs versus paintings. All the same arguments, man. Any idiot can go out there with a camera and take, you know, 30 landscape images in a minute where this poor painter has to spend hours on a single one. How is that fair? And yet, you can copyright your photographs, and it has not destroyed painting as an art form or as a source of images to be copyrighted. So the Copyright Office does have some prior art on rejecting applications because copyright protection is only available to works created by human beings, including not supernatural entities or animals in the case of the monkey selfie or other animals that have been taught to draw and paint things, and not computer programs. And the monkey selfie was because there was no one to assign the copyright to because the monkey was wild. But Jim's point is that the AI-created art should be assigned to the person who who did the setup for it or whatever. Who operates the AI. Yeah, well, so should it go to the person who created the AI or the person who provided the prompts? The person who provided the prompts. You don't grant copyright for a photograph to Nikon because they built your camera. It's the person who pushed the button and took the image. And frankly, there is generally at least as much creative effort involved in generating prompts to get a really good AI image, let alone, you know, an exhibition winning one as there is in setting up a photograph. You know, these are, again, it's these arguments. There's nothing new. Photographers will talk about, you know, it's not just oh, I pressed a button and something nice happened to be in front. Like, you know, I go to set up my image, like I'm I'm looking for composition and I have to get the right light from the day and the right angle and I need to adjust the shutter speed and the focus and the exposure and the blah, the blah, the blah to get exactly what I want. Well, this is how you generate art. Now, the other issue is copyright is not only for art. Something does not have to be good art in order to be granted a copyright. All it really has to be is distinct from other things. You aren't granted a copyright because your painting was hard. You're granted a copyright because you are the one who made your painting, and nothing significantly enough like that painting had had a copyright registered to it before. And your copyright gets violated not because somebody picked up the same brush and the same paints and made the same strokes in the same order as you did, but because however they produced it, they produced what is essentially the same image. 
even if your copyright of a painting is then recreated almost exactly by someone taking a photograph that looks almost exactly like your painting does, that absolutely can be and has been a copyright violation. Because again, it's about the result. It's not about how you got there. Now, the interesting argument here that I wish at least the Copyright Office had tried to make would be to talk about, explicitly to talk about brute forcing the space. It would be reasonable to worry, what if a big company with uh, lots of resources decided to just brute force the image space and copyright everything before anybody else did it? They're not even looking to see what's good or what's not. They're just getting all the copyrights on everything that might be an interesting image before anybody else possibly could. And that would be a real problem. However, you know, this just becomes a resource exhaustion problem, and you can solve that pretty simply literally just by throttling. Okay, well, you know, a legal entity with X number of people is allowed to apply for X copyrights per annum in the name of that legal entity, and suddenly you no longer can brute force the space. But in most jurisdictions, you don't have to apply for copyright. You're automatically granted it when you create something. You might have to prove that it's yours, and that can be a tricky thing. But copyright is not something, it's not like a patent where you have to apply for it. It just is automatically applied to the creative work. Technically and philosophically speaking, sure. But in practice, the only way that copyright can get, quote, automatically, unquote, applied is if a bunch of people have seen that work. Because in order for you to actually exercise your copyright rights with an implied copyright, you have to demonstrate that you created the what's it first before whoever else did that you want to apply your loser attitude readjustment tool for stealing your thing. But what you're talking about with the brute forcing of just create an image of everything, that really reminds me of the early days of domain names, where companies would just register everything that they possibly could. And then when you went looking for one, you'd have to buy it off them rather than just from ICANN or one of the registrars. Well, that never stopped. It didn't ever stop. It decreased to some degree. And the, ma the major reason it's still as much of a problem as it is right now is because they allow all these assholes to do what they call domain tasting. The spammers and the speculators and the squatters, they almost never actually buy the domains. They taste the domain. You're given, I believe it's 30 days to check and see, am I getting the SEO juice I wanted to out of this domain that I'm thinking I might like to buy? And at the end of that 30 days, you can just give it back. Doesn't cost any money whatsoever. And you know what you can do? Also, after you give it back, you can taste the same damn domain again right then. So with the willingness to do the labor, and most of that can be automated, you can literally just keep checking out the same bunch of domain names you're hoping somebody will want from you for pretty much ever without having to spend anything for it. That seems like a broken system to me. It is a very broken system. That's why, I, that's, this, these kind of things are why I said, I really would have appreciated it if the Copyright Office had gone into these types of very real potential issues and said, hey, we need to explore, you know, the issues that might arise around people being able to brute force this problem space and, you know, create real economic issues, as opposed to just being like, uh, AI sucks, you don't get no copyright for your AI, which is all this really boiled down to. I found it very disappointing. Harkening back to what you said earlier, Joe, um, you, you mentioned that uh, you, you can't get copyright for images that were created by a computer program. And I've got some nits to pick with that, because if you write a computer program that triggers the shutter on a camera, guess what? Yes, you absolutely have copyright of that image that that computer program took 
with your camera. You set a trail cam out and you set it to, you know, take pictures anytime that motion is detected and you get a really good shot of, you know, a, a deer at night on the infrared and whatever. Yes, you absolutely have copyright of that image. Yeah, or you could program a robot to move in a specific way to take a video like a lot of the top YouTubers do these days, these ridiculously expensive robots. And that's all done with code and it's the same thing. This is an excellent example of something called reductio ad absurdum, which translates to reduction to the ridiculous. So, you know, it, it might seem reasonable at a very high level to say, oh, well, you can't have copyright, you know, if a computer program caused the image to be taken. But then once you examine that idea, you realize, well, code took the image for every single photo you've ever taken with your cell phone, and not just in terms of triggering the shutter, but oh my God, the amount of image adjustment that happens with modern cell phone photography? Are you freaking kidding me? Yeah, we talked about this before, the very idea of what even is a photo these days. It's a blurred line. Even with a dedicated modern camera, you know, point and shoot or DSLR or whatever, it is not as simple as because you pressed a button that literally just like closed a relay and caused current to flow and, and you know, the, the picture got taken. No, you're telling a chip, it's time for you to take the picture now. So it's all computer code, man. You can't just say, well, no, you can't because computers, because guess what? It's 2023. Everything's computers. To be fair to Joe, that list of things that aren't allowed to get copyrights was from the Copyright Office. When did we start being fair to Joe? <laughs> I, don't, I don't approve of this trend. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a good point about computer programs. Although I wonder for the, uh, even the AI, what if somebody types in a similar prompt and gets the same image out? That's obvious. The same thing that happens if you go to the exact same park where somebody took an award-winning photo at the same time of the day, you know, with the same weather and take what amounts to the same picture, you violated that person's copyright. So somebody makes an incredible image using, you know, some particular image generation algorithm and you find out what their prompts were and you use the exact same prompts and get the exact same image, you violated their copyright. Or you use an entirely different algorithm, you feed it entirely different prompts that nevertheless result in something that is similar enough to the copyrighted image, well, you violated their copyright. Because again, how you made the copy doesn't matter. If somebody has copyright on a novel, it doesn't matter whether you typed that novel, whether you wrote a copy of that novel, or whether you literally put it in a photocopier at the library, they are all copyright violations. Yeah, although the line can get a little fuzzy. They have a, a great example in the ours piece here about an AP photographer who took a picture of Barack Obama at a panel discussion and somebody made a painting out of that picture and it was not a copyright violation. Yeah, the very famous Hope poster. But what also should be obvious is that we already have a legal system that has been handling these exact issues for centuries it doesn't need mucking around with any more than it needed substantial mucking around with when cameras became a thing or VCRs became a thing or photocopiers became a thing. It needs some mucking around with, but for entirely different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because of the inputs, the training data. No, 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 not, not even that. I'm, I'm talking about the, you know, life plus too long copyright holding in, in Disney. Precisely. They're, they're way too long. Yeah, yeah. Which is an entirely different reason why we don't want anything copyrighted by an AI who doesn't die and therefore mm. causes a bunch of sections of the copyright code to just not work anymore. Well, yeah, it's the same reason you wouldn't want a photo or an image that's been manipulated by Photoshop to be copyrighted by Adobe. You want it to be copyrighted by the person who 
click the mouse and hit the keyboard to make it happen. And it really gets hard to draw the line between a tool and something creating it. And most of the time, I'm, I'm kind of with Jim here that it's really people ascribing too much anthropomorphic properties to AI, where suddenly it stopped being a tool like Photoshop and started actually being a creator. Oh, but that's the fun thing. People screw up both in over-anthropomorphizing and under-anthropomorphizing AI. All these people that say things like, oh, well, you know, AI is always copyright violation because all it is is stitching pieces of images together when that's not how it works. There are enormous differences, obviously, between human mentation and, you know, AI models, but they're not as different as a lot of people seem to think. The general way that humans learn versus the general way that an AI model trains and stores the pattern associations it's learned through that training, they're very similar. And if you outlaw training on a set of data, you very quickly get back into reductio ad absurdum again territory when you say, oh, well, you know, you can't use anything that your AI model trained on. There's not a lot of difference between that and saying, well, you can't use anything that you've learned. And again, the escape to that reduction to the ridiculous is just to stop trying to say no because computer in the first place. We already know this is not what any of this is about. It is about similarity to existing works that are known. That's all it has to be about. Stop trying to bring the tool into it. It's irrelevant. That's not what copyright is for. That's not how copyright does work. It's not how copyright can reasonably work. So stop it. Well, I look forward to all the emails we get saying that you are a shill for big AI, Jim. That's Joe's email at (laughs) (laughs) gmail.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Hackers absolutely love exploiting vulnerable employee devices and credentials, but it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers, and you can manage every OS, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues without creating more work for IT. The good news is, you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and it ensures that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. So support the show and visit collide.com slash 25A to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. I want some advice about something. So when I'm interacting with my NAS via Thunar, the file manager on XFCE, it's quite slow. And so this is just a data set on a single disk pool. And I'm getting about sort of 700 megabits per second over Ethernet, which is fine. And most of the time I use Wi-Fi, so it doesn't matter. But when I SSH in, do a Python 3 HTTP.server, and then wget the other end, I max it out. So it's, I thought it was the disk, but it's not the disk. The bottleneck seems to be Samba. There's some overhead there. And so is this just a limitation of Samba that it's going to be slower than a simple Python server? Or can I tune it? Now, I did look this up and saw a bunch of blog posts about, oh, this is how you tune Samba to make it quicker. And I just thought, I'm not just going to start messing with my default Ubuntu config file. 
So I thought I'd ask you two about it instead. That was an excellent decision because when you start Googling Samba tuning, what you come up with almost instantly is just legions of 20 and in some cases going on 30-year-old smb.conf stanzas that have just been blindly cargo cult copied and pasted down the decades and will actually screw you up far worse than you started with. Now, the thing here is maybe Samba is your problem. Samba can be an issue. It's not the quickest network protocol and it's very chatty. So particularly uh, when you've got many requests rather than one big one, the chattiness of the protocol can mean the the uh, induced latency has a huge impact on how quickly like moving a lot of small files does as compared to moving over some other protocol. But also the fact that you're using Thunar specifically, there's a very, very real chance that Thunar is actually your bottleneck and not Samba. That was the first thing I was going to say. Now, I'm not that familiar with Thunar. I've, I've seen it before. I've used it before. But the way most of the graphical file explorer type tools in Linux land work for, for SMB connection is they use Fuse. And when you use Fuse to connect to Samba on the other end, you've got the Fuse stack limitation, and that is absolutely a bottleneck. If you wanted to uh, to test that some, what you could try doing is instead doing a uh, an actual Samba mount, like from your etc. FS tab, and see if that goes any quicker when you're not no longer going through Fuse mode. But uh, beyond that, I would probably recommend that if this is really a concern for you, given that you're not really a big Windows household, maybe just consider ditching Samba. I actually ended up ditching Samba entirely in my house and just using SSHFS for everything. Once I discovered that uh, my media player would just connect directly over SSH to stream files, I was like, oh, sweet, screw Samba then. I'm just done with it. I don't do any more Samba sharing. I'm guessing, again, because it's Thunar, it's not Nautilus, but for the most part, most of these managers support multiple protocols, and you can just specify the protocol directly in the uh, the address box of the file manager. So instead of saying SMB colon slash slash, you know, path to whatever, mm. you can do SFTP colon slash slash or SSH colon slash slash, you know, and, uh, and connect that way. And frequently you'll end up with better results. I actually, I had an issue, the machine that I was sharing my media files from, something got screwed up in the Samba package, and it just absolutely would not talk to any other Linux clients. It was really weird. All the Windows boxes I tried to connect to it with had no problems. But all of the Linux stuff, including my media player, just flatly refused. And I fought it, and I fought it, but uh, it was very difficult to get fixed, and I didn't really want to skunk the whole box, because it was my personal workstation I was sharing the media from at the time. But uh, so then I just experimented in Cody and I saw, oh, it looks like there's an SSH option. So I was like, well, all right, what if I want this share to be, you know, SSH colon slash slash Banshee slash whatever. And it just, boop, just immediately worked. And I also noticed that the performance was considerably better in terms of just like how long it would, you know, would take to uh, populate thumbnails on a new directory to never browsed into before, things like that. Yeah. Other things I would say is because it's a single disk pool, you can be getting pretty close to maxing out the disk. Make sure when you're doing benchmarks like this that you're not doing an unfair comparison. If you read the file over Thunar and then wgetted it, most of that file is going to be in the cache now and you're reading from RAM the second time. And so you're comparing apples to oranges. Were you dropping the caches every time you ran one of your tests, Joe? Or just purposely cat the file on the server, get it warm in the cache so it takes like no time to read and then benchmark both different ways. Yeah. Right, no, I wasn't purging it from the cache, no. Yeah, it depends on what you want to test. If you want to test the disk, you want to purge the cache. If you don't want to test the disk, 
cat it five or six times in a row to make damn sure that you've got all the blocks of it in arc, and then you will not have to worry about the disc potentially being a bottleneck. And you can find out, you know, where the actual bottleneck is when it's not the disc. Okay. At this point, based just on I didn't know what Thunar was and listened to the way Jim described it, I'm going to blame Thunar for the slowness. <laughs> so I would say if you do want to test Samba, mount it and test it with just CP or rsync. rsync would be a bit weird, but we're just copying the file and, and observing the speed. And yeah, there's tuning you can do for Samba to, you know, force the window size larger on the TCP so that you'll get more throughput. Also, Samba has a multi-channel mode, it calls, where it can use more than one TCP connection to get the stuff, which can be really important on both the send and receive side to make it end up using more than one CPU core for your NIC even to send and receive the packets, but also means that Samba will be sending blocks from that file from more than one thread. And you'll, again, get much more performance. It made a big difference. I went from like 300 megabytes a second to 900 megabytes a second on my 10 gigabit network by enabling the multi-channel mode. Note that Alan is talking about 10 gig networking. Also, Alan is not some filthy casual. Be (laughs) careful when you start getting into this tuning Samba nonsense because down that path, there lie dragons. Yes. And if you go chasing a benchmark and getting the top highest number, you may suddenly discover that, oh God, this thing is like really unpleasant to use now because you've tuned for high-end throughput and you have not tuned for low-end load latency to deal with issues with like lots and lots of small requests. Be careful with this stuff. Be very methodical. Do not just blindly copy and paste giant wax of configs you found on the internet somewhere or just kind of half-assedly do this thing you half remember Alan having talked about that one time. It will not go well for you. Yeah, and don't just look at numbers in the tuning and multiply them by eight and think, yeah, bigger's better, right? Yeah, never has been, never will be, particularly for Samba. I will also mention that in my experience, for at least the last 15 years or so, generally when you have Samba performance problems, the problem is not Samba. The problem is almost always, in my experience, on the client. And tuning the server will not help you with that. Mm. Uh, Joe, if you have a Windows laptop lying around, that's another thing that you can try is just see, hey, if I connect to that share from a Windows laptop, what kind of speeds does it get? Because I have very frequently seen that a Samba server will communicate with Windows clients at wire rate on a gigabit network. But Linux machines connecting to this same Samba server are getting like half wire rate. That's pretty common in my experience. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Charlie says, I'm something of a low-power obsessive. As my spinning Rust media server isn't being used for 95% of the week, I therefore tend to keep it turned off and only wake it when it's needed for movies and TV. However, this means I need another way of hosting smaller datasets that are frequently accessed, Nextcloud, photo storage, podcasts, etc. Keeping in mind the low power consumption obsession, is it feasible to build a roughly 2 to 8 terabyte ZFS pool on a bunch of consumer SSDs? Are there any issues to watch out for? Are there enterprise drives that would be more suitable? Or is power cycling the spinning rust several times a day simply a bad idea for hardware longevity and it makes better sense to keep the media server on 24-7 using it as my main server, power be damned? Well, I'm not a big fan of spinning rust drives up and down for exactly that reason. It does tend to... Mm -hmm. uh, 
increase the wear on the drive to a point that I think is a, a terrible return for what little power you save out of doing it. In answer to the direct question, is it feasible to build a two to eight terabyte ZFS pool on a bunch of consumer SSDs? Absolutely, for sure. it's feasible to do that. I have got tens of machines in production that are uh, doing that. However, the other question, uh, would enterprise SSDs be more suitable? Yes, they would. I would particularly recommend Kingston DC500M or DC600M line. They also have lines that end in R for less write-heavy workloads that you might consider. The big things that you get out of using these enterprise-grade SSDs, they've got uh, power loss protection, which means they can handle sync writes tremendously faster than consumer SSDs. They also have built-in hardware QoS that keeps them a lot more consistent in performance, whether you've got a very light workload or a very heavy workload, which can be very nice, especially when you're talking about VM hosting. Finally, however, I do want to address, because this is about power consumption, you probably shouldn't expect to save a whole lot of power this way. Although SSDs are a little bit less power hungry than uh, Rust hard drives are at idle, when they're actually under load, they do not consume significantly less power. In some cases, they even consume a little more. Depends on the model of SSD, depends on the model of drive. But in general, for a machine that you're actually using and accessing the data from regularly, don't expect a lot of power savings from going SSD. Just expect better performance. But is it not the case that if you're going to be powering this server up and down a lot, SSDs are a way better way to go than spinning Rust? Quite possibly. Probably better to just have the media server on 24-7 than to have an SSD server on 24-7 and a media server on occasionally, because that will hurt the media server drives, like they were saying. And yeah, with the power savings being so minimal, you're talking about like single digit dollars per year in savings in total, probably. And so spending a bunch of money is going to help there. And the money would be better spent on a CPU that is more efficient and so on. That's going to be the bigger part of the cost than the drives. Better yet, spend the money on a stick-on insulation strip that goes around the edges in the door to your apartment or house, and you will save tremendously more power in your heating and cooling bill than anything you can do with your NAS. But this question about consumer SSDs versus enterprise, in the consumer space, there's quite a lot of variation there. And from the research I did, the Samsung Evos are pretty decent for consumer ones. But then there's the Samsung QVO, QVOs, is that how you say it? Which are like the cheaper version. Are they just terrible? They are absolutely terrible. You save almost nothing going from the Evo to the QVO in the same size. And you're dropping from TLC NAND flash to QLC. So quad level rather than tri-level, which means you have got significantly lower. And we're talking about like cut it in half levels of write endurance. Right. You also have lower performance. It's just, yeah, don't go there. If QLC flash was a lot cheaper than it's actually being sold, there would be use cases for it. Although even then I would consider them pretty niche compare with SMR Rust drives, yeah, you can talk about use cases for them, but they're not very widespread. Well, because for you, sort of one and two terabytes, there's not much difference between the Evos and the Qvos. But when you get to the four terabytes, that's when you really see a difference in price. I checked those prices very recently when Charlie emailed in, and no, there wasn't a big difference in price. Well, maybe it's different in the UK, but you're just saying avoid them generally then, the Qvos. It can come down to your use case, kind of like Jim was saying, even with the Kingston drives, they have the R version, the read intensive, 
which means it has much lower endurance. But if you're storing media where you're going to write the media once and then read it a couple of times, that can make sense. But if you're going to host VMs where you're going to be reading and writing sectors all the time and you're going to have a lot of sync writes, that's where the enterprise SSDs with a high endurance and good sync write capabilities will make a much bigger difference. If you're just archiving stuff, then you know your QLC NAND maybe is better, but it really comes down to the price point. They're significantly worse, so you'd have to have a very large cost difference in order to make up for that. And do you really want to subject yourself to, I bought the terrible SSDs because I don't think I'm going to use them that much? Again, it's like SMR rust drives. If an SMR rust drive cost, say, a third what a proper PMR drive did, a lot of people would be very willingly buying them and happy to do so, but they don't. They cost maybe five bucks less if you're lucky, and very frequently, five to 20 bucks more just because it's the newer model. So of course you want the newer model, don't you? It's the same thing with QLC. If it were available to you, the end user, significantly less expensive than TLC, yeah, there'd be a lot of use cases for it. It is not available to you, the end user, significantly less. And I'm talking like half should really be like the bare minimum. If you could spend just say 200 bucks for a four terabyte QVO versus 400 for a two terabyte whatever, then the QVO starts to look potentially appealing if it matches your workload and your workload is narrow enough and you're sure it will fit everything and you don't mind the much lower write endurance and you know all this stuff. But that's not the case. If you're extremely lucky and you hit exactly the right model, you might see a 20% cheaper QVO of the same size than an Evo. And that is absolutely not worth it. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrs.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.